1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, David James Gonzalez, and I'm pleased to be speaking with Christian Bais, author of The Strikers of Coachella, a Rank and File History of the UFW movement, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2023. Christian Pais is Associate Professor of Comparative Ethnic Studies at the University of California Berkeley. He is a 20th century labor historian with interest in transnational migration, social movements, and history methods. Hello Christian and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies.
2: Hi DJ. thank you for having
1: me. Well I'm excited to talk about your book and uh, as we get going there's a lot to talk about but as we start out I would love to hear, and for our audience to hear a bit about yourself personally, and uh, you know sort of your background and kind of how you came into uh, your current profession. For sure, thank you. Um,
2: you know, um, that's a question I've answered repeatedly in in different places, and I never know where to start. <laughs> you know, um, but I, you know, the beginning thing is that the the book, the Strikers of Coachella, is on the the Coachella Valley which is in Southern California, about two hours southeast of Los Angeles in a drive. Uh, It's also about an hour north of the California-Mexico border. Um, It's primarily um, in one end, the one end that I grew up in, uh, farm-working community, primarily Mexican or ethnic Mexican, Uh, a lot of Mexican immigrants, uh, many undocumented, and a lot of Mexican-Americans. My my father's Mexican-American, my mother's Mexican immigrant. Uh, they worked in the fields and then they worked in labor throughout the region, um, like hotels, golf courses and stuff like that, you know, stuff that, that exists in the desert for, for, you know, for X reasons. And so I think, I think that's where I began, right. I, I grew up in a community that was struggling. Um, I grew up in a community that was really, you know, um, loving and, 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 uh, um, dedicated to its children, and and it was very proud of its work. But I, I, I'm not sure I, I, I saw many, many ways out of that world, uh, if not through through formal education, through college. And, you know, I went to school and I came back. I was a high school teacher, and so when I was a high school teacher, that's, uh, one of my colleagues gave me a, a documentary on the United Farmworker Movement and so for the, the listeners who may not know what the United Farm Worker Movement is, it's a it's a labor union, a kind of labor union social movement. So it's a little informal in the structure, but the, the premise is pretty key. It's simply that they were trying to get contracts in agriculture, especially in California, but throughout the country, that would improve working conditions and living conditions and really kind of equalize relationships between the the growers and and the farm workers. And so this thing begins in the 60s, continues onwards to the 80s, and I'm born in 1983, right? Right in the middle of Reagan era. And by the time I'm born, uh, and and by the time I was raised in that region, I don't think we really ever spoke about um, the UFW or Cesar Chavez, right? And so when I saw this documentary, it was really, really stunning uh, to me, Uh, shocking, really. and. And and it you know it kind of I wanted to know who these farm workers were, and I wanted to know why they joined a movement that um, often meant that they were facing terrible odds and incredibly marginalizing conditions, like death threats and losing friendships and being blacklisted and fighting your husband, right? Because maybe the husband was was against the union, but you were for the union, so. Um, yeah, I wanted to know, you know, why, why did you join and what did you see? Like, one thing I was telling my students was that, you know, um, I, you know I grew up in this, so because I grew up in this community, I, I, I kind uh, of knew, you know, working class life, working poor life, farm worker life, which was that people were people, right? People uh, got heartaches, you know, people fell in love, people... Raised their kids. People got frustrated with their kids. People worked hard. Some people cut corners. I mean, uh, people, you know, it's full humanity, and um, and I didn't think we were seeing that in the scholarship on the UFW. So I wanted to, so kind of slowly, kind of evolved into this project.
1: Thanks for that. It's you know reminds me it is your own story there of not, not really knowing much about the UFW. Uh, despite, or the farm worker movement broadly, despite growing up in this valley, the Coachella Valley, it echoes so much of several students that I've had who have grown up in farm worker communities, whether that's in the San Joaquin Valley in, in California or you know other parts throughout the Southwest. But I'm particularly thinking of these places where uh, the UFW is known. Um, I mean, I, I was born in Oxnard and uh, lived there for the first 10 years. I knew nothing growing up about, you know, Cesar Chavez, Duras Huerta, the farm work movement there. I didn't even know my grandmother, you know, had been a member of the UFW at points. And I just wondering if you could reflect a little bit on that, on, you, you sort of get to this in the beginning of the book, Describing Rancher Nation, and we'll get to that. But, um, you know, you talk about the background of this valley and and kind of like the type of, you know, dominant narratives and ethos that create its, its identity. Can you speak to that and, and what to sort of answer that question of, man, how is it that kids like us can grow up in these places that are, were so monumental and important ways to these movements you're writing about, but know nothing about them?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I've, I don't, I don't know if I have a, a definitive answer to that. I've been asking that question. Like, why don't we know this? Um, you know, what, what, what curriculum is necessary in order to teach it? You know what are um, the relationship of public school teachers in these communities to their students, who are often very different from them. And um, you know what the you know what you know we're having people fight against ethnic studies generally in California, right? Despite its liberal presentation, um, so um, I wouldn't be surprised if there is some kind of pushback around that, um, in part, right? I think. You know, one thing to, for, your read, for your listeners to understand is that California in the 1980s and the 1990s was an incredibly racist, reactionary, and short-sighted political culture. It was a region that repeatedly, repeatedly voted on propositions, on statewide propositions against greater social equality, against securing uh, racial um, uh, justice, for criminalizing, uh, for instance, migration into the state or into the country, or criminalizing the teaching of Spanish over English in public schools, or then outlawing affirmative action, right, in, in the UC and college system. So, this is a, a state that fervently committed itself um, um, to a, 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 a vision of the future that I think a lot of Californians today, especially of color, uh, reject and it's uh, a vision that we're we're hopefully um, eliminating from our political culture. Uh, and so I think that that probably affected what was being taught in schools and how things were being commemorated. You know, in the Coachella Valley, for instance, uh, one of the key ranchers was his name this man named uh, K.K. Uh, I think is Kenneth K.K. Larson, small a uh, grower of grapes, table grapes. Uh, I think he was a very proud grower. I think he thought of himself as growing really good grapes and fetching really high prices. And I think he, he thought of himself as a very liberal um, guy, right? Um, you know, eventually he dies, as all humans do. Right? Uh, and his, uh, his wife is also a major figure in the grower industry. And she becomes a, But really, she becomes a bigger figure after his death becomes a politician becomes a uh, uh, the, the representative for Riverside County that represented the east end of the Coachella Valley. so the Coachella Valley is inside Riverside County the county has five seats in this board of uh, Board of Supervisors board of directors um, and so you have a, a grower representing a farm worker district. And this is a district that is facing huge budget cuts as a result of Proposition 13 in California. And you know, Proposition 13 lowered property taxes in California or froze them, really. So we talk about froze property taxes that made it really difficult for local and, and, and regional governments to pay the bills. And that meant a lot of cuts uh, to social services, whether this be education or things like uh, public housing. And in Coachella Valley, the East Coachella Valley, we had a huge, huge deficit of public housing uh, or affordable housing. Let's just call it that, right? Like affordable housing, or any kind of housing that was standard, right? That had electricity, that had uh, sewage systems, that had clean water, uh, that was safe from flash floods or or fires. There was none. The very the little bit that existed were with ranchers, um, who then determined the conditions. Uh, regardless and that was their priorities and so there are many activists in the 1980s so when we were being when we were coming into the world fighting for public housing and uh, this candidate larson this con- this uh politician her solution was to create wallless encampments meaning like like just concrete slabs with some shaded Uh, sections but no walls and there'd be communal restrooms and water spigots and stuff like that. That was the solution. Now for those of you who don't know what Coachella Valley is this is a desert Um, it's a very very hot desert it's one of the hottest regions in in the country. Uh, It normally gets 110 degrees for weeks on end right Uh, sometimes it gets to 120 there are monsoons there are flash floods there are terrible um, like windstorms that take sand everywhere. And her the solution by this politician who is being elected by local, primarily white residents, is to create a campsite that would protect provide no protection for farm workers. So this is all to say, these are the folks who are still in power in the 1980s and 1990s in rural California, and arguably are still in power in many parts of rural California. And unless they are able, uh, unless we're able to confront their story, to 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 underline their anti-human um, uh, uh, politics, then I think we're going to be stuck with the story of of a UFW that is kind of a vague outline that celebrates America, but doesn't really consider the everyday humans in this movement, the the conditions that forced them to t- to take something that was so. Um, Was such a gamble and took took such uh, impact on their bodies, and what it is that they were hoping to achieve, right? Uh, And and really how far, uh, how how we you know, you know we were denied a much better. What I tell my my students is, um, we could have had a better state, we could have had a better agricultural uh, region in California, we could have had food that was just right, that every single grape that you ate was picked by workers who, who had healthy bodies, who had healthy minds, who had healthy communities, you know, and we don't. And that's because, um, you know, America as a whole uh, betrayed itself in the 70s and 80s. You know, America as a whole attacked us labor unions. America as a whole attacked Black people. America as a whole, right, uh, exacerbated the social inequalities that we're witnessing today and provided the basis for despair that leads to all of these early deaths throughout the country, it's not just farm workers, right? It's almost like America's workers have become like farm workers, they've become people who are overly reliant on employers who don't care about them, right, and have very limited opportunities to make changes in the political realm. Now we're we're starting to see, I think, some of those changes uh, happening. Maybe, um, but uh, I think we're you know I think that's I think that's why they're not teaching it. You know, I think uh, as a country we're struggling with our history, and I think we're struggling with the choices of people who are still alive today. So well, that's great. Well, Thank that's you. True. I don't know, you know, you know, I try to prepare for these questions, but then I got so sick, <laughs> So, so <laughs> and, no, that's... Know, but it's like, because there is a question, like, why didn't I know this? Like, you know, there's this writer, and I talk about this in the last chapter, this is writer, uh, Rigoberto González, he writes this beautiful memoir um, called Mariposa, what is it called, uh, uh, Butterfly Boy. And he, he grows up in the farming labor camp in the Coachella Valley in the 1980s, only a few years after some of the biggest strikes in the region led by the UFW. And he never hears about the UFW. He doesn't. His mother dies when he's 11. He doesn't understand that his mother was a striker too until he goes to Mexico and finds photos of a younger mother uh, when he was a baby in the picket line. I think... Uh, this is this is a a movement that I think was really powerful incredibly radical and very very promising and it was pummeled that's the only way to describe it it was pummeled into the ground uh, and 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 I think we're trying to resuscitate it you are know, bring it back to life uh, so that we can be able to use it
1: no I agree with that hundred uh, percent I've Dealt with these, I deal with these questions, right? Not only thinking about my own uh, background, um, but particularly about again the the people and places I study. And I think it it's it ties a lot into what you're saying, and also in the book, you know, you describe the kind of social and physical landscape of the Coachella Valley, and you use this kind of this term, this metaphor um which i believe was used by the ufw as you you describe called rancher nation and um which kind of you know depicts this this uh kind of oligarchic control right there's this class of ranchers um that are running everything you know they are able they own the property right they eventually at least in some areas like the area that i study Orange county they own all the banks they eventually own all the water right? They, they get on the school board, city councils, counties. Is this what the Coachella Valley looked like in mid-20th century, um, you know, California?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think I didn't, you know, it, it was really hard to figure out how to tell a story that included the, the fields and the conditions in the working fields um, with the conditions that existed in the nearby towns. Including for families who were not field workers, but who were non-white, right, and who were workers in other respects. Um, and I didn't, I didn't have this term in the when I wrote the dissertation. Oh, I didn't have it fully. I guess that's that's what I would say. And it wasn't as a com a common of a term in the newspapers, at least. A lot of the the material that that describes the Rancher Nation as a nation or as a society in which the rancher has um, like extreme sovereignty over his life. And it's almost always him, his life and the life of the people around him. Um, uh, Philip um, Veracruz, uh, the Filipino um, farm worker leader, uh, UFW leader, he has a series of articles where he defines these ranchers or describes these ranchers as has having so much power that they've become illogical; that they, they have no capacity to empathize with the workers in their midst. They don't recognize the violence inherent to a society that that underpays uh, people, that overworks bodies, that attacks any form of democratic uh, self-expression. Um, and and you see that. once I had that image, once I had that language, I could see it everywhere. It was every single place. I had, you know, there's a man named Max Huerta who talked about how he felt that he was in a hole, that he couldn't have good schools, he couldn't have good food, he couldn't have good housing. He could see it, right? He could see it in the Rancher's Kids, he could see it on television, he could see it in other places that market itself as America, right? But he didn't have it, and there was no way to get it. That was the sense, there was no way to get it. There's another woman in Clementina Oyoki who said that she felt like she was in prison, like trapped, and she didn't have a key. She felt desperate, like desesperada, right? Desperate. Um, or you have someone like Pi Velasco, another Filipino labor leader, who has, there's a, he has a, a, um, a, a journal uh, in 1965 that is available in the archives in Detroit. And he's just writing about how he didn't have a chance to marry, right? Because of the the anti-miscegenation laws against um, Filipino and Asian men, uh, didn't have a chance to have kids, and didn't have a chance to have the life that he wanted. And now he's in his fifties and sixties. Um, the biggest example to me of what the rancher nation looks like was uh, one of the women who joined the UFW very, very early on in Delano, right? Uh, And she and her young husband, they were both like in their teens, like 17, 18 years old. I mean, you can just think of like our students, right? Like little babies. (laughs) Uh, Now I think of teenagers as babies, right? Like little babies. Uh, But they had a baby themselves, right? Like a few months old. Super sickly kid. Uh, They lived in bad housing, right? Um, Housing that is cold in the winter, is hot in the summer, no water. They didn't have access to a doctor. Um, they didn't have money to go to a clinic, right? And the kid kept getting sick. And one time it, she and her husband, right, both kids drive for about almost like 20, 40 minutes. I mean, the, rural California is really spread out. And sometimes there's a clinic, like 40 minutes drive, right? And so they're driving to this thing, we panicked because this baby isn't um, breathing. And and she says that she she um, she felt her baby die holding holding them before they got to the hospital. And then afterwards they didn't have enough money to um, to, to give to give them a, a burial. And so they had to go from one farm worker house to another farm worker house asking for a little bit of money to, have, to buy a coffin and to have a service. Um, that's the rancher nation. That's, that's what we have still. And that kind of like cruelty and arrogance is something that we have to name.
1: Yeah. Thank you for sharing the the voices and the experiences of um, all these, you know, workers and residents and those that were subjected. And, and as you mentioned, right, you continue to speak in the, the present tense, right? Because it's not as if this, this has ended. And I think it's something that I enjoyed so much about your book is the, the spectrum and to avoid using a an overused word like diversity, right? But the spectrum of voices, and experiences, and narratives that you magnify um, your work. Uh, much of your research is based on. He you said you conducted over a hundred uh, oral history interviews. Is that a little correct? Uh, a little on under one, that, Around there. Well,
2: let's see. About a hundred. Yeah, two hundred hours, right? But it was like with seventy. 70- participants somewhere more than others so it's a really unclear number but a ton <laughs> you know you know you know how it can be it's fun but there's so many so many stories toda una vida one person told me a whole life every single person's a whole life right so yeah
1: yes and it's um, you know having done some of this work myself and it's or dealt with archives that have oral history uh, work how did, you, how did you bring this all together? You, what you avoid doing is a very kind of bifurcated and stark picture, right, of, of there's this class and there's that class, right? You're, you go into this social landscape of, yes, there's, I mean, there, you have these big class divides. You have farm workers and working class people. You have immigrants or you have, you know, poor folk, right? So broadly, you could zoom out and take that big picture and say, okay, you got the rancher class, that as you say, that has all this sovereignty and control, and then you have kind of everyone else, and there's maybe a a small middling sect, right, of some people that are, 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 um, you know, able to obtain some type of middle-class privilege, right? Can you talk more about how you avoided that and how you strive throughout the narrative to present, you know, this non-linear, kind of again, non-dichotomous type of view of uh, this valley and of these people's lives, for sure.
2: I, you know, I just wanted—is the audio sounding better right now? I'm looking. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Okay. I uh, well, you know, let's. So, I think for me, there are two parts to the story. One is to speak of, you know, the spectrum or the diversity of human experience in all facets facets of life, but especially in something like a social movement. And then the other one is a question of politics, right? Why do we do what we do? Um, And they're related to each other because they're riffing off of each other. The first one, the issue of diversity. I, you know, I saw this growing up, right? Like I, you know, I I grew up with folks and some people I liked and some people I didn't. (laughs) Some people liked me and some people didn't. You know, just because we inhabit a shared, marginalized position does not mean that we're a family, right it means that we are simply sharing a marginalized position and from there we can have this conversation about what do we do to get out if we want to get out right and and that's the politics and and it's hard it's hard to 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 uh, that's what I'm well two things I'll say uh, the first thing I'll say is i have never gone on strike ever in my entire life, I'm a labor historian, but I've never gone on strike. I was a high school teacher. We had a union. I'm really proud of that. But we didn't go on strike. Uh, I worked. I did like a summer internship uh, with a labor union where I was asking people to join a union and possibly go on a strike. But I had never gotten on strike. We just had a student strike, a grad student strike at UC Berkeley, right? Um, striking is hard. Striking is, is uh, any kind of politics is difficult. It's, it's, um, it's deeply vulnerable. You know, you're, you're, you're trusting that your colleagues or your coworkers are going to be on your side. Uh, you're hoping that, uh, I don't, that you will be able to have a strategy that addresses the supervisor, right, or the employers. And I think most people are hoping that the repercussions won't be as awful as they fear. And in that kind of a landscape, I think people will make many different choices for how they're going to respond to this condition. Some of those choices will be to rally their community and to go on strike and go to meetings. And some of those choices must might be to hide, right? And just hope that your kid has a better option than what you had. And then I think some people, for a lot of reasons, uh, may choose to side with the, the rancher, right? Um, I think for me, um, it was important. Um, the, for me, it was, the only way that I could create these many, many stories and many, many biographies and many subjectivities was by thinking of the UFW less as a vehicle. Like I talk about a train on tracks. It's not a train on tracks. There's no train. There's no tracks. I'm saying it is more of a field of, of stories. People are trying to talk to each other. Uh, sometimes people are trying to hear each other. Uh, oftentimes people are missing each other or not trusting each other. Uh, but just as likely people are changing through each other. And and for me, that is what this union was. It was an attempt to name the world and in doing so to try to change it in incredibly, incredibly dire odds, dire like context. Um, and so I think... With, with that kind of idea of a, of a shifting cultural uh uh and and deeply diverse uh set of politics that come together and pull apart i think that uh it allowed me to see um b- both the radicality of this movement but many of its challenges as well and and we try you know i try to i try to show this in the book as as, as it moves along
1: yeah. No, and you do, a, you do a great job at doing that, It which leads me to um, the next question. Um, oftentimes the farm worker movement, the UFW, right, is, is and the Chicano movements are um, really viewed as simultaneous and sometimes part of the same thing. You know, a lot of movement histories of the particular Chicano movement views the UFW as one of these real animating or mobilizing um uh, you know, efforts, right, M- mobilizations that leads to what we now call the Chicano movement. Um, and so what I appreciate in in what you do is you start to narrate, okay, here's the landscape of the Rancho Nation, and this is how people start responding. And it's it's all through the grassroots. Some of them are, you know, more activists in kind of traditional politics that we now view of, and, and, and they they get involved in Mexican Americanist right type of voters' rights organizations, and then that eventually leads to uh, later on the development of the Chicano movement with younger activists and all of that. Will you you know talk about how studying this in the Coachella Valley? got you to see that okay you you have these two you have farm workers and their struggles and and their union and then their union's kind of you know it's a union and it's like a movement and then but you have the chicano movement itself you have these there's these other efforts for to transform the politics and inequality or, or at least fight maybe transform's not the right words for some they're seeking to transform right for others they're looking for a little bit better a little bit better peace for themselves and for their class or group and so we just speak about how these two movements develop, what uh, the farm worker kind of struggles, right, and that eventually leads to the UFW. And that's that's happening kind of simultaneously, right, as you're having Mexican Americanist like right voter campaigns and and you know other type of activist struggles. But they, you know, they're not the same, right? They intersect at moments and they overlap at moments, but they're not the same thing, mm-hmm. right? They're
2: not. No. Um I think, you know, I you know, we, we we took classes together, right, and studied Chicano history and I think in many histories the, the ties between these two movements is taken for granted. And um and and I, I you know I and it was unclear to me what the relationship was just yet. I my hunch when I started this was that a lot of the the connective tissue uh, was around shame, that uh, there was a racial shame to be Mexican. There was a racial shame to be poor because you were Mexican. There was a racial shame to be a farm worker who was poor because they were Mexican. right? And so even if you weren't a farm worker themselves, you were within the racial shame of this labor. That was considered to be both fundamental to the region's economy, and yet non-fundamental to the region's politics. Um, and this, and this, so as I interviewed people, this this became more apparent, right? Um, there were many different people in the Chicano movement, just as much as there were many different people in the UFW movement, but because they were in the same place and they were often targeting the same people, right? The ranchers who controlled everything, right? Um, they were often in conversation with each other. Sometimes they were in conversations directly by way of the father-mother being in the UFW movement, whereas the kids being in the Chicana-Chicano movement, or vice versa, right? Um, and so for me, the you know, one of the, the things that I noticed about the Coachella Valley, and that I think is likely the case, uh, in most parts of the Chicano movement was that the the ethnic, the ethno-nationalist politics that is usually um, identified as a critical component of the Chicano movement in this time period is a lot less prevalent. I don't really see it, right? I see a lot of ethnic pride, for sure, and I see a lot of, like, kind of awkward you know, histories of like indigeneity and Aztecness and blood and mixture, all of that stuff. But really people wanted, you know, a culturally competent education, like where you weren't calling people dumb because they're Mexican or like shaving their head because you didn't like their hair, right? Or telling them that, you know, Kennedy got shot because they were they were in the country. That's like one person, right? Or what the kids felt, one person told me that she felt that uh, she was expected to become a farm worker because she was Mexican, right? And so for some of these Chicano activists, Chicana activists, being part of the UFW or supporting the UFW was part of an effort by their movement to create a wide diversity of human possibilities, which is another way of saying to create a democratic future, a future that allows people to learn, to live well, and to shape their lives, that's really what this was. And and this union, this UFW, was attacking ranchers in their world, right? And they were winning. That was the most stunning part. They were winning, and and that inspired movements. I mean, right now there is what they call Labor Summer, right? <laughs> like everyone's on strike right now. Uh, they're striking. Um, Hotel workers, right, in Los Angeles there are striking writers in Hollywood. There, there might be striking uh, UAW workers, right? Um, and everyone wants to know why this summer and now why other summers. And there's some reasons, right? Like the pandemic showed us that uh, rich people are not on our side. <laughs> they don't have a country, right? They they support themselves. They're not going to help us. And two, that we worked in a really, really, really difficult time, right, and that we survive together, and that we can survive together still. That's that just happened with the pandemic, and then the other part. There's this kind of, there's this kind of crediting of Biden, and his and his, you know, I don't know tepid pro labor uh, stances. I think that has an impact, especially with the Na- National Labor Relations Board. But really, for me, this labor summer is also probably a, 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 an inspiration or an inspired act from Black Black Lives Matter protests, from a lot of the race justice movements. I mean, people inspire each other, and in many ways, that was a relationship between these movements, right? The UFW inspiring young people to saying, "Oh, you know, you strike, I do a student walkout," right? You boycott. I lead a a vote in into the city council member, right? You dream of a future where you can do a variety of things as a farm worker. I will dream as a future where I can serve my farm worker community, whether it be as as doctors or nurses or teachers, right? Which is another way of dismantling this rancher nation, right? Taking it apart and providing a new uh, set of possibilities for the next generation, So I think that was, you know, that's the, and to me, at the end, it's about getting rid of the shame that was never ours to begin with. It wasn't our fault that we were poor. It wasn't our fault that we were oppressed. And it's definitely not our fault that we haven't been able to get our freedom that we deserve, right? This is, we just have really, really effective enemies.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com slash system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's Shopify.com slash system.
2: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today
0: at LQ.com.
1: Yeah, no, you, I agree. And I think it is very It's helpful and can be illustrative for our, I think, for You know, for our listeners today, for as we both teach in the classrooms and try to help, you know, my students understand what was it like, you know, to live during, you know, this moment, the 60s and 70s, when the UFW, particularly 65 to, you know, mid 70s is running at its peak in in some ways, right? Or building up to it and getting there. And there's all these different cacophony of movements and, um, you know, I think you're right in pointing out to what's just happened over the last several years. You point to Me Too, look at Black Lives Matter, look at the pandemic. I mean, it's, it's no accident, I, I don't think, right? And you look at, and we'll get this till we talk towards kind of like the, the response of Rancher Nation to some of these victories and how they, how they survive. But it's, it strikes me like how long, right, have workers been asking for $15 an hour? And then what gets it, right? What gets it is the pandemic, you know, and the labor shortages that that's what finally forced them. I just still can't believe it. I drive down my street on the way to work and I see all these fast food places, you know, paying $15 an hour or more. And, you know, which, which again, it, it seems like uh, a, a large amount of money when you realize how low the minimum wage is. Right. But it's still bare I mean, people can't even survive on this. Um, the way this structure works. I mean, you said something earlier, basically, um, you know, we all live in rancher nation, right? I mean, the, the, as you mentioned, right, um, you know, capital has no country, it has no loyalty, uh, it does, even to a political party, right, it, it has loyalty to itself. And uh, I think it, it's, um, I love being able to being able to see, uh, you know, the connectives, the connections between you know, both the moments that we study, and it's not to flatten them to say the history repeats itself, it doesn't do that, but to show the persistence of um, certain structures, right, like capital, like racism, etc., you know, that continue to create these structures among which, you know, people are asked to live. Um, So this makes me thinking, I'm, I'm, I appreciate you drawing that connection and those distinctions between you know the the movements for us. Um, I'm thinking about how, you know, what the union meant, if you can give us two examples, what did the union mean to, because we hear a lot about, you know, the Mexican, Mexican-American Chicano perspective, but what did the, the, the movement mean particularly to women, uh, the UFW itself, right? Yeah, there's this part where you basically say there's this kind of like a, the UFW participating in it provides this like feminist world inside and outside the Coachella Valley for women, and then uh, so give us an example about that, and then also another one perhaps more of so what did the union mean to Filipino workers for sure um, yeah and what they brought to it. Thank you. Those are great questions. Um,
2: so let's so let's talk about women. Um, you know this is. Um, this is an intervention on the part of women interviewees, right? Um, I kept asking them questions about their experiences in the union, but there were never really questions about gender. Uh, and, you know, in part, this has to do with the fact that I'm a man, right, who, who has his own blinders. In part, I think this has to do with the newspaper, the UFW newspaper uh, that was being published in the 60s and 70s, which I was relying on uh, at first, um, but this newspaper was really directed at white people, white, or white liberals or white people who claim to be liberals. And to them, they had to present this homogeneous revolutionary family that works well together, right? I don't know any family that works well together. <laughs> That's one, you know, but certainly I don't see one that works well together under patriarchy which is one that is existing in this time period. There's farm worker patriarchy and there's a the rancher patriarchs patriarchy. The, the rancher patriarchs are the real patriarchs, right? The little farm worker patriarch, un gallito, that's like a little rooster. That's what uh, the women would tell me. Um, often try to dominate their family's lives, control the wages, right? Uh, determine who worked and who didn't. Establish labors within the household, who clean, who didn't clean. Um, tormented uh, women's lives, right? Uh, uh, domestic violence was not uncommon. Uh, sexual harassment in the fields by male supervisors was incredibly common. Um, worker discrimination because there were women were also was also just inherent to this thing, right? And so one example is uh, Maria Serrano. She's uh, 92 right now. She's still alive. She's wonderful, militant A woman whose husband was a bracero. So for those of you who don't know, the bracero program is a two-decade-long program or a set of agreements between the United States and Mexico to provide short-term labor contracts. That's what the name bracero means, arm or arm labor. Uh, short-term contracts to Mexican laborers to work primarily in agriculture in the United States, presumably to provide labor in a labor shortage. Um, eventually, the family moves up by way of Maria Serrano's push to reunite the family at the border. And for her, she's imagining, she's, she says she's imagining she's in San Isidro trying to get papers, trying to cross the border, right? Right. In, in Southern California. And and she hears these young chicanas or Mexican Mexican ethnic Mexican women, like in their early 20s, late teens, talking about doing their taxis. Taxis this, taxis that. And she's not thinking income taxes. She's thinking uh, the car car share <laughs> program. Like it's the the Uber before Uber, right? And and so she's wondering if they have their own business. And two, but she's thinking, but they're working in the field of flowers, they say. <laughs> the field of flores. And in this field of flowers, she's imagining, um, she's imagining women working together. There are no male supervisors. There's no like a, like, a, like a speed up of labor. They're making enough money that they have time off. Right? And she's imagining for her daughters enough money to learn English and go back to school so that they can do something with their life, right? so that she, they're not dependent on the man. So she already has this politics by the time she crosses the border. She has this politics in Mexico. She's learning this politics by way of Mexican women. She doesn't need the UFW to teach her how to be free. But what she does see in the UFW is that if she has a union, that she can demand uh, an end to sexual harassment, that she can make more money to provide more money for her children and she can be part of a political culture that validates and encourages the education of their ever daughters, right? And so that's what she does. She joins a union that gets, fights sexual harassment, that is fighting uh, sex discrimination in the hiring practices, and that is trying to take uh, the rank and file male workers, right, who are still profoundly invested in patriarchy, is taking them to task Doing grievances against them, right? And one of the, the simplest examples of, of of patriarchy and 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 it's and its violence in this in, in these fields is the, the utter lack of restrooms, porter potties, and these fields, right? So for those of you who have not been around agricultural California, agricultural California is, you know, is an industrialized monoculture based agricultural system, which means that fields run for miles, 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 miles of like nothing but cilantro or or watermelon or grapes or whatever the fuck we're, sorry, forgive me for cursing, but whatever we're growing, right? Whatever we're growing so that people can eat their food, right? So someone like me can feel like I'm being healthy when I eat vegetables. And a lot of these fields are no more than a few inches off the ground, maybe a few feet off the ground. And so if you don't have a restroom there, that means that there's nowhere for you to go to, to urinate or defecate, which are conditions that we can't escape as much as we want to, right? It's humanity. And so for women, this meant that, that one, they were having to train their bodies um, and two, if they couldn't, if they had to, if they had some kind of emergency or if they felt sick, that they would have to have women circle around them in order so that they can have a bit of privacy because their male co-workers weren't willing to respect that. To have a union that then demands porta-potties was to have a basic right that was not there. And I think that's this is what, way to think about gender and, and feminist politics. It can be that basic, right? So that's One. For Filipino workers, it's, it's a bit different. The primary, the, the great majority are men. They're older. Uh, most, many, at least, it's unclear the numbers, but at least from the people I've, I've, I've read their oral histories or their papers, many, if not most, are, are single. Uh, They're single at 50, 60, uh, primarily because of anti-miscegenation laws, which were racist laws that were passed by white men, presumably to protect white women uh, from the potential attacks by non-white men. Um, It's rooted in eugenicist politics. I mean, it's all this stuff that people can, you know, well, it's pretty standard stuff, (laughs) like, like what's going on in this region. But the 1960s, 1970s, these are men who are much older, for about maybe the last 10 years of their life, period, maybe the last five years of their working life, period. Uh, their bodies are aching already. They have no Social Security to rely on. And there's a question about how to live at, at the end, right, and what to do with that. Because sometimes some of these workers have been working for the same employer day in, day out, for many years, and still in poverty. Um, for, the, for them, the union had a long history of, of, of union Filipino union militancy. So this was one more reiteration. Uh, they they triggered the strike. So in 1965, on September 5th, this is when we're doing the thing, the interview right right now. On that year, it was only Filipino workers who were on strike. They had one, gone on strike on September 1st, right? And then for two weeks, they were alone, right? Uh, before the Mexicans joined in. Um. And for some, this was a union that facilitated an opportunity for them to, to tell their story, to name their world, especially against the ranchers. But for many, this was also a, a, a movement that, that didn't see them enough, didn't credit them enough for, 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 for this politics, uh, overlooked them, and oftentimes was incapable of defending their interests. Right, And for many of them, this was a tragic story, a story of their their militancy triggering a national movement that it becomes very, very, very romanticized and almost like overly validated by white liberals. And yet there was no attention to the labors and to the visions of these Filipino men. And so for them, a lot of the union was them, each other, how they were responding to each other, how they were supporting each other, including at the end, which was as simple as writing each other's obituaries to saying, I lived, right, I fought, right, I wanted something better for my life. I'm proud of who I am, of what I did. Um, and I think that's important for all of us to read, right, this, this history, especially for Chicanos and Mexicans today. This is our, our, our histories are very much interlaced with each other, and, and our radicality is very much indebted to each other. And if we're, we're hopeful of, of changing the agricultural economy that exists in California and throughout the country, um, then I think we need to begin to think of, of the ways in which we can see each other. As racial people, as racialized peoples, as peoples with very distinct histories, and yet with a very similar position with regards to marginalization. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's, I think for both, I think um, the UFW provided many rich opportunities and um, and and many many and, and some disappointments. Yeah,
1: certainly, and as you're. The subtitle points out this is this is why it's crucial right that we needed a we need a history and many others right uh, that shows the rake and file perspective um, so much of um, whether it's the ufw or or broader social movements right they're defined and remembered often by charismatic leaders supposedly and not uh, all the people that actually, comprised it that had their own visions as you're sharing um, and had their own reasons, right? Um, you point out that, uh, you know, for a while, the the successes that came up as a result of these efforts led to a, a type of constitutional revolution. Uh, yeah, if sorry about that. Right? Yeah. No, that's fine. <laughs> um, but a constitutional revolution uh, within the Coachella Valley. Um, and yet there's in... In ways, right? The empire struck back, um, and it, you describe so called what, what's been blamed on the movement, um, you know, the, the farm worker movement, this type of declension narrative where, um, and I'll let you get into the reasons of, of how that's been interpreted, but um, what's happening in the 70s, 80s, as you pointed out to earlier, right? There is a strong, massive pushback by capital, and um, uh, you know the, the owners and the leaders of industry against right uh, unionization as it is, and they attack it through legislation. They attack it through uh, rearranging their business models, etc. Um, exploiting new forms of labor. So, uh, if you can describe for us and uh, you know, explain, in your view, um, how does the you know because as you point out in the beginning, the the movement itself, the UFW. And its peaks kind of, you know, ends in the early 80s, if you will, if there's this kind of declensionist type of narrative. Um, so there's that. Why does that happen? What is it, despite these key victories, what is it that that makes it so that um, they weren't able to be sustained long term? Or at least, you know, you still have some things today, right? You can still now see, you can see the porta potties, right, in fields if you drive through agriculture areas in California, you can see some of the victories that were there, but yet there's still these conditions that, that exist. So why is that? And how do we fit the UFW into this, this historical narrative? Um, and, um, you know, this kind of history of broadly, right? This revanchist type of resurgence and t- attack, uh, against, uh, working people in the eighties and nineties.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's see. I'm putting some notes down on paper. I, I don't know about you, but as I've gotten older, I just have a hard time thinking of the. I don't know. if that, that? Is this what? Is this what the forties are supposed to be? <laughs> I you know so so let me let me begin with the history with the effects. Is that okay? Yeah, perfect. So I think for readers, this is. I, this is my read of the literature right now I'll preface that by saying uh I think that we we need more people to write more histories um generally right so don't take my word but <laughs> but this is my read my read is that there are two major waves of ufw scholarship uh these waves are distinct but they're related in key ways and and they come at different time periods so the first wave uh, begins really in the mid-1960s and continues to about the mid-1970s. Uh, this is a key time period in the UFW. This is kind of like the apex moment in the UFW. Most of these stories or most of these accounts of the UFW are by journalists. Uh, many primarily white men who are, mo- are are traveling to the region and kind of documenting what's going on in rural California. This kind of unprecedented labor campaign that was increasingly not only successful, but like grabbing national attention for these folks, the main question was how did they do it? Right, agriculture was is a was a was and is a realm of labor that is not accounted by labor protection rights in the country, and that is incredibly racialized. So much so that it was it was kind of like a the the one region outside of domestic work that was. Um, was populated by others who were not white and incredibly, incredibly poor and without any unions. And the answer for these folks was simply that Chavez, right, had this kind of mystical quality, this kind of touch, right? Similar, the way that white people write about King and other leaders, right? Like Martin Luther King, right? Like this kind of charismatic leader that has a touch with the, the, you know, these racialized farm workers that they don't know either, the writers, right? That's the first thing, right? Very triumphant story, very romantic story, oftentimes a story that is presumably reflecting America's uh, essential qualities, which is that it's progressive, that it's egalitarian, and that it's getting better over time. That's wave one. Wave two begins really in 2008, all the way to about 2018, so about another 10 years. This one is much more formal histories. Uh, They're much more detailed. There are many more characters than the initial one. It's not just Travis. We see Filipino workers in greater amounts. Not enough, I would say, but in greater amounts. We see some Yemeni workers in greater amounts. Not enough, but we see some of that. And we see a lot of white liberals, a lot of the the folks on the boycotts, a lot of the people who are volunteering. And, And that's really the core of this literature. And these, these books are trying to answer the question, how did the UFW lose, right? If the other one was about how did they win, the second one is how did they lose? And the answer for them is the same, Chavez. In this instance, Chavez either was, had some inherent quality to him that made him autocratic, right? Or he snapped at one point under the pressures of this movement and became autocratic or the union did not have enough um, guardrails to prevent an autocratic leader from rising, which then Chavez did. And in this autocratic, vaguely, mentally unsound state, Chavez led a, an implosion, right? He started to attack uh, the white volunteers, including the lawyers, and he started to attack any kind of leaders that were criticizing him, leading to a, a huge exodus of central leaders in the union. So those are the two main questions, two main fields, and two main approaches, right? I think that there are a lot of benefits uh, to these fields, and I think there's a lot that we can learn from. Uh, and yet, at the same time, they're despite their differences and despite the things that we can learn from them, they share many, many um, um, shortcomings. Um, there are very few actual farmworker voices in these histories. Right? This is a farmworker movement, and you'll find that we hear more about white people in this farmworker movement than farmworkers themselves. Uh, there, are almost, there is almost no real critique of white supremacy, especially when it comes in liberal form. Right, the the volunteer that comes in who wants to lecture you on how to lead your movement, the volunteer who goes to the boycott who tells you how to run your boycott, or the liberal who reads the New York Times and just wonders, is should I really support the union? Right, white supremacy comes in many different colors, and especially in many different politics, and I don't think there's enough of that in this in this in these books. And then there's a uh, an overemphasis on this idea that one man had the impact to affect an entire social movement, not just a social movement, but to affect the basis of an entire economy, right? That this one man determined the basis of agricultural labor relations. And that's just not true, right? I mean, this is America in the 1970s. It's an America that has right to work states, right? It has the beginnings of deindustrialization Through global exploitation, especially in northern Mexico, it has literal uh, repeated attacks on every single labor union, including the strongest labor unions. The only labor unions that survived this were cops and prison guards. That's it. (laughs) You know, Uh, in California, we had one proposition after another that was just, I mean, stunningly racist. stunningly uh, 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 short-sighted, by no means a a commitment to an egalitarian society. Uh, And this is, you know, this is the time of Reagan, right? Reagan going after the air freight controllers. Uh, You know, this is is not a region, a time period where America was becoming more equal, where America was becoming more pro-labor, where America was finally uh, coming to terms with its racist history. Right? This is not the time. And so what we see, so for me, it's, it's hard to understand how a literature can put the focus of a people's movement on one leader without recognizing the profound social context in which it existed. And so here the question is not so much whether or not Chavez failed the UFW. He may have right he he was a a very stubborn man uh, some of those audios and meeting notes are incredibly difficult to listen to um many people behave in ways that i think they regret eventually but this is not a story about how one leader failed a movement this is a story of how america failed us right it, it, it betrayed us america as a country was unwilling to listen to the needs of farm workers in the 70s and 80s, regardless of what America tells itself about how they boycotted grapes. And you think about the fact that in the last 20 years, many people, and I would include myself, and I imagine you would include yourself too, have been working really hard to change California, and then through that to change the country. To, become, to create more diverse legislatures, to have political representatives that are invested in all communities that they're representing, to creating schools that are culturally competent and not racist, at least to start with that, right? To create colleges that are invested in the communities that they're serving, all of that. And the country has been doing the same thing. We've been trying for the last two decades, trying to change this country. And what do we get in return? A failed coup. That's what we got. A failed coup from a cartoon president. That's America. The UFW is not America. America is Trump. The UFW is trying to get us past that. And they just weren't able to do it in the 80s. Right? Now, the question is can they do it now? Right? Or can some farm worker movement do it now? And I think so, maybe. Right? I think there are some of the UFWs changing. I was able to have a uh, victory on some of the the, how votes are going to be counted for labor unions. Labor unions in California are moving towards pushing for um, organizing sectors instead of organizing specific locations. And I think that if we have more political pro-labor um, representatives that we may have an opportunity where we're able to restructure um, all laboring conditions. Um, so, I, you know, so now that said, there are many, many things that the union still did, right In California, for instance, right now, are uh, one of the legislator uh, leaders in California uh, is coming comes from UFW farm worker families from Salinas, right. In the Coachella Valley, many of the political representatives who are Mexican American are coming from farm worker uh, families who have some in some ways ties to the UFW. In my local community, I mean, I, I, you know, one of the things that I regret the most uh, with this book was not getting like a line editor because I see typos and errors in my grammar. And that's because I'm an English language learner, I think, like I learned English as a 10 year old. Right. But. You know, and, and I think that's perfectly fine. I'm lucky that I learned Spanish first as, as my my mother's language, but also that I could read and write in Spanish before I turned into English, before I was outlawed by California whites. <laughs> like, like so, you know, like, so there was bilingual education. I grew up in public housing that, they, that farm workers and Chicano, Chicana activists helped build. I had incredible teachers for my entire life. Incredible teachers who were dedicated for me, to me, my future, and then eventually, many of the people who I uh, I met in college were only possible because people were providing a bridge to go from my home to go to college. And then after college, when I became a teacher, I went to teach at a school that was being built by Ch- by former Chicano activists who were now principals and and school district leaders. And so, if we if we have a, a resurgence of of farm labor activism and a and a an eventual disavowal of the rancher nation for what it is, which is a moral failure. Right? And if we're able to change laws and and, and create a society which farm workers do not uh, experience early death, where they don't experience excruciating disability issues, uh, where they're not um, uh, exposed to kidney disease because it's getting hotter and hotter under climate change where if uh, they're undocumented, they're able to regularize their immigration status so that they're not afraid of their supervisor. Or when there is a climate change catastrophe, like the stuff that we've been having in California, that there's some real investment, not only to rebuild these communities, but to do so in a way that's ecologically sound. If we're able to do that, that is only because of the foundation that the UFW provided. And I think that in, and, and, and it's going to be because we learn through these everyday people on the ground who were fighting back then, and who are continuing to fight right now? The people who I interviewed are still fighting. Like there are people who, as there's this uh, older, elder woman, woman uh, Virginia Ortega. She she was in the UFW. She was part of liberation theology in the Catholic Church, and now she's leading a uh, a seniors, uh, citizen type of like a mental health, uh, social organizing awareness campaign. Right, um, so th- this, this, this—you know—one of the questions you had is what what are the legacies of this union? And I wasn't sure how to answer that in part because I don't I don't think it's dead, right? Maybe the peak was in the eighties, maybe early eighties, maybe. Um, but you know, we're about to see something more, and I think um, I think that's kind of exciting.
1: Amen. You know, and I think um, one thing we realize as we study movements like this is that the, that they don't end, right? As you point out, Virginia, right? They these people, their lives, you know, continue, and they they're this kind of ethos that they have, you know, it, it's built into them. You know, these are people that, as you mentioned, um, I forget the 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 um, um, the woman you were speaking of earlier, who who you know migrated to the United States as a farmer. She came, right? with right that type of mentality and these skills and this this uh you know uh, this kind of the struggle was built into her and uh, and so yeah it doesn't end you know these people go on and they there's some go into um, you know formal politics some go into neighborhood you know forming additional neighborhood organizations and and you're right i mean I, I i i see it i've seen it in my own work i've seen it in the people in the communities that you know, that that I study, as you, you go there and you you see their families, you see the impact, it, it is all there. Um, but as as we, I think, as we began with, right, it's this issue of, part of the issue is um, how their voices are often marginalized, you know, even even today. Uh, and that, that creates this distorted picture of either what movements accomplish, accomplish or what their legacies are, because, you know, this is, as you mentioned, right, the UFW is is right. These are the people, right? This is what represents ordinary people today uh, and back then, um, you know, pushing back against whether it's the the rancher nation or whatever metaphor represents the powers that are in front of them. But um, you know, thank you for this, and thank you for your time. And uh, I will just also add that um, you know the book is beautifully written. It is. Uh, initially, I wanted to ask you some of your um, some of uh, you know the the inspiration and where did you pull the inspiration was to describe the landscape that the way that you did. Clearly, there's some key influences on you um, in how you developed your writing style, ESL or not. It's <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's incredibly written. Few books are uh, particularly books that come through academic presses, in my opinion, are written this well. So, um, thank you, thank tremendous you. job, and thank you yeah. for your time, Christian. Thank you.